Hey y'all, here's a little episode about food. Now, why will we do that on a history podcast? Because Professor Rafi Azafar over at Washington University in St. Louis told me, food and identity have strong ties. How do people, you know, think of themselves? How do they conceptualize themselves as Black individuals in the United States? And Foodways is one of those, one of those ways. Her book, Recipes for Respect, African-American Meals and Meaning, is about how Black people have written about food and recipes in the 19th and 20th centuries. The process of studying this is often not very straightforward. And that really comes out in your book at the very end, in the last chapter, when you talk about Arturo Schomburg. Now, Schomburg is famous for having said on multiple occasions that when he was a boy growing up in Puerto Rico, uh, he had a teacher who said, well, black people have never done anything. You know, this little boy said to himself, that's not true, and I'm going to prove it. And of course, he grew up to be this amazing collector of African-American history, historical books, maps, you know, anything, ephemera, anything that could help document the African-American experience, you know, globally, not just historically, but also globally. Something that doesn't often come up about him is that he tried and never was able to complete writing a cookbook. Mostly it's a list of recipes and then there's a sort of short memoir. The detective work he had to do to try to make this cookbook shows two major difficulties in tracing Black culinary history. One is a lack of Black-authored cookbooks. Where is he getting these recipes from? If African-Americans, by and large, and you know we're talking about maybe not even five or six for the entire 19th century cookbooks, where is he getting these recipes from? His workaround for this was to find references to Black cooks and white-authored cookbooks. One of the things Schomburg had to do was kind of read or, or suss out the reflected knowledge of African-American chefs whose works, whose dishes had been written down or preserved by white cookbook compilers. How Black people are discussed in those books is the second obstacle to tracing Black culinary history. White people had this way of associating Black people with kitchens, but didn't usually credit them in a usable way. For example, there would be recipes that would be introduced as made by someone named Aunt Judy, who's always been with our family, which would have been a Black woman who'd been working in a white household for a long time. But she doesn't get the dignity of a last name. And that makes it super hard to figure out who the actual source of this recipe is. But let's spend a little time talking about Black-authored cookbooks. In the beginning, there weren't very many. But of the few that you found, there was an interesting trend of more than one of them, including a personal slave narrative of the author. Why was that? The slave narrative was a genre people were familiar with in in the United States, but also because Black people, for better or for worse, were connected in the white mainstream American mind with being geniuses in the, in the kitchen. You know, the slave narrative is a kind of a subtle, unconscious way of demonstrating your prowess in the kitchen, right? Because a black woman in the kitchen was associated with great cuisine. And we can say that stereotype 
for better or for worse, became a stereotype. It's the same stereotype that kept Aunt Jemima on food packaging for so long. Even though women had that Southern mammy association, your book starts with Black men in the North. The first books, there I call them, they're domestic manuals that have recipes by African-Americans are by Black men. Robert Roberts, you know, in the 1820s and Tunis Campbell in the 1840s. Uh, what's interesting about them is that they're literate, they're Northerners. I'm particularly interested in the ways that each of them use the opportunity, right, of writing a book about domestic service to transmit coded messages about interacting with the white world to the young people who might be reading the book. Like, this is how you act with your employer, but we know these employers were likely to be white, but also messages that are more explicitly to the whites who are buying the books. This is, this is how you should treat your servants, right? This is how you should treat the people in your employ. So it's an, a really interesting dance Roberts and Campbell have to do, along with you know, instructions for making stove polish, how to stoke coal in your stove, or how to make things like hangover recipes or scrambled eggs or whatever. But, you know, there's material in which the recipes are embedded. You know, the instructions are prefaced by the men about how do you operate in this white world and maintain your dignity as a black man, right? A black man having to work, you know, in a pretty narrowly constrained career, you do have the opportunity to make your mark. You do have the opportunity to preserve your, you know, human dignity and to make the world better, right? By passing on what you've learned to younger people and also attaining a career, one of the few career opportunities that was available to you as a Black person in the United States, you know, even in the North before the Civil War. One man who gets a whole chapter in your book is George Washington Carver. His work with food and writing went way beyond peanuts. I know. I keep telling everyone he is more than just peanuts, right? I mean, that's what I thought of George Washington Carver. Yeah, he's the peanut guy, right? He was at Tuskegee and he invented all these uses for peanuts and sweet potatoes. But if you read his bulletins, right, and you read about his life, you see that he was dedicated to the small farmer. You did not need to use chemical fertilizers that you could fer you know, fertilize your gardens and your farms organically. He talked about crop rotation. He talked about, you know, enhancing the soil. He talked about the importance of the small farmer not monocropping, right? How important it was to have what we now would call a kitchen garden and maybe to have some domestic animals, even though it's a chicken or a couple of chickens or a pig. What we think of today is food sovereignty, right? So that people did not have to rely on a store that was more than likely run by, possibly by, run by the plantation owner whose shares, you know, you were cropping, but to be able to can your own food, to buy as little as possible from a store, and to have a balanced diet. 
Those were the values and instructions written in the agricultural bulletins he published at Tuskegee. You know, what's fascinating, and I say what's noteworthy about Carter, he's the first Black person to have a graduate degree from Iowa State. He turned down a job at Iowa State to go to Tuskegee because he said my, he felt that his people needed him. Though he wasn't from Alabama, he was from, he was from Missouri. Carver published these pamphlets, um, agricultural bulletins, and might have been about growing cotton or this or that, but they would be like ones about black-eyed peas, ones about tomatoes with different recipes, a lot of vegetarian and vegan recipes, though he was not you know, strictly a vegetarian or a vegan. He also had a food truck. Yeah, a food, a food truck. Right, right. And essentially it was a carriage, like a tricked out, that would have, ex- you know, like samples of seeds or, you know, whatever. It was like a mobile classroom on wheels. So it was a different kind of food truck, right? If you're a small farmer, you can't necessarily, you know, you're trying to make a crop you're trying to keep things going. You're working like from can't see to can't see, as people say, right? From dawn to dusk. That doesn't mean you can go to Tuskegee and take a class at night because you're worn out. So the idea was to have this mobile classroom about food, right? So you could talk about how to grow your food, but also maybe simple ways to can your food and take it to the people, right? And teach them that way. Before there were things like extension schools and all those kinds of stuff, let's just get it on the carriage. Let's get it on the truck and take it in and to the people and have them see it. So he was in, innovative in, in that way. He's also, even in those recipe books, in those recipes, he would sometimes say that he would say that flowers are as important for your health as doctor's visits. And he could talk about how tomatoes came in such different varieties and colors that you could use them to decorate the plate. Like like restaurateurs today talk about the importance of plating the dish when it comes out. He was talking about that kind of stuff. Um, And that's definitely not how people see Carver. Thank you, Professor. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this show. Thank you for everyone who has ever told someone else you know about this show. It truly does help. Follow me on social media. It's at We the Black People Pod on Facebook and Instagram. And I'll catch you next time. All power, all people, y'all.